Apple presents events at the Apple Store. We actually have a really cool video we want to show you from MLB.com. Let's take a look at that and then we'll get started. Since 1869, when Harper's Weekly featured the Cincinnati Reds, the national pastime has been at the forefront of media and technology, changing the way fans consume the game and people around the world interact. Thomas Edison recorded the first motion picture of baseball in 1898, making it the first team sport ever captured on film. The first radio broadcast of a game occurred in 1921, and on August 26, 1939, the first Major League Baseball game would be televised. With each generation, baseball and media would grow together. In 1947, the first televised World Series became one of the biggest events in television history. In 1962, a game between the Phillies and Cubs was the first video signal ever broadcast across the Atlantic. And in January of 2000, baseball would take yet another leap forward. Under the leadership of Commissioner Bud Selig, the league would centralize its digital rights, forming an independent technology company with the mission of delivering baseball to the next generation of fans. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome tonight's guests from MLB.com, Chad Evans and Adam Ritter. Hi, good evening. My name is Adam Ritter and this is my colleague Chad Evans and we're from MLB Advanced Media and we're really pleased to be here with you all today. Today's a historic event for all of us, especially those of us who have published apps in the App Store and just about anybody's ever downloaded an app out of the App Store. Today is the fifth anniversary of the Apple App Store and we couldn't be pleased. We were one of the first apps uh, in the store when there was just 500 and here we are on the fifth anniversary uh, with an ecosystem that we're really pleased to be a part of. Uh, what we would like to do with you is just give you a brief background on MLB Advanced Media. We're part of Major League Baseball and really walk you through the evolution of how we got from our early beginnings in the early days of 2000 to where we are today. Um, MLB.com was founded in 2000 by the Commissioner of Major League Baseball when he and the 30 club owners voted unanimously to vest all their interactive media rights in a separate standalone organization, an independent tech company whose whole being was to invest in solutions to bring the best in breed technology to the fans of baseball. So pretty easy thing to achieve, right? Yeah, and we were actually the first sports league to take that approach. Prior to that, you may remember, almost every team had an independently run and operated site, which aside from being incredibly inefficient, led to a pretty wide disparity in the quality you would get. So the same market effects you might see in sports could, would be distributed to their technology. So you know, you'd have to recreate every scoreboard, all that work time and again. So by centralizing it, we could really create a more uniform quality experience for all the teams. And in addition to providing all the technology to Major League Baseball to bring the action from the field to fans, or whether on desktop computers or mobile devices, we also support the 30 clubs with ticketing solutions, shop, sponsorship opportunities, as well as licensing. So if you remember back to late 90s, early 2000, it was the height of the first dot-com boom. And cities all across America were trying to take advantage of the hype and excitement around Silicon Valley. So you started seeing in Texas, you had the Silicon Prairie, there were Silicon Harbors, Silicon Beaches. In New York, we had Silicon Alley, which was in the Flatiron District and Chelsea area. And so when the league was looking for a location to start its fledgling technology company, they decided to move downtown from the sort of official league 
League offices uptown on Park Avenue, and we moved into our outpost in Chelsea Market in the Meatpacking District. The Meatpacking District at the time was what we like to call an up-and-coming neighborhood, which uh, really meant that it was kind of sketchy. It actually still smelled like meat at the time. Um, and we were in Chelsea Market, which was the site of a historic Nabisco cookie factory. So my first year in the company, I actually set a desk that was in an oven where they used to bake Oreo cookies. So fast forward to 2001, which was really the launch year, April of that year, of MLB.com, which if you think about it was a site for the league, as you see there, but also 30 individual club sites. And if you're all familiar with baseball, the very first pitch of the very first game is very, it's a ceremony, throwing out the first pitch. And we decided to have a similar ceremony in our office. So two lucky folks got to throw and catch the first ball. And we learned something that day that if you drop the ball, that's a bad thing, an omen. So finally, they threw the first pitch in the real games, and all the traffic started coming to the sites, and everything crashed. Fortunately, there was no social media yet, because we would have been absolutely crushed on Twitter for all the sites going down. But we did manage to recover, and over the course of that year, we launched a lot of the foundational technology that you still see today, from live audio broadcast to independent press coverage, live game stats, a lot of the features that are still with us today. And we learned a really important lesson, which was that we are a live site. We get huge peak volumes of traffic when games are live. And I don't really think they were expecting that with the first launch of the site. So taking that live game experience really became sort of a core mantra of what MLB.com is all about. Uh, another big uh, opportunity in 2001 was, if you remember, it was Ichiro's first year in the league. And it, he was electric. He was like a rock star for baseball. He was the first Japanese-born everyday position player, and the excitement was huge. There were huge press crowds following him around. And we thought, what better opportunity to take advantage of this new internet technology than to broadcast all of the Mariners games live in Japanese? Uh, launched the product and did not go any way as we expected it. It turned out there was very limited interest in listening to poor quality audio at 4 a.m. in the morning in Japan with a Netscape plugin that you probably couldn't figure out how to install. But we sort of moved on and really took it to heart that we still believed in internet streaming and you know we just didn't have great product market fit, as you were, for this product. So early on, the CEO of our company, Bob Bowman, believed that live streaming was the future. It was the future of streaming live content online. And in August of 2002, we actually took the step of streaming live baseball games to fans on desktop computers, and whether it be Macs or PCs. And it was an incredible experience, as you might imagine, streaming at a 29 kilobit stream through a dial-up modem. It was like, it was like watching a slideshow. Uh, but we actually had 30,000 people watch. But yeah, the press was lackluster to say the least. Uh, here are some of the quotes. So really, nobody believed that anyone would actually want to watch live games on a computer. It just was not something anyone expected to do. They never thought the quality would get there. And for anyone who's ever worked at a startup, you know, it's a message you often hear a lot. No one believed in my product. And we actually experienced that very same thing here, which is that you know, live streaming wasn't really real. It just wasn't ever going to get where it needed to get. 
So we were actually um, launched uh, later that season, a, or the following season, uh, a full slate of games online. And that was the birth of what we now know as MLB.TV, which is watching live out-of-market games, fans. So if you're a Yankee fan and you're living on the West Coast, you can enjoy every live game today on virtually any platform. Yep, and when that product launched, we realized we need to make a really big infrastructure investment really to address some of the quality issues. So we wired up all the ballparks with direct fiber access from the parks to our office in New York, bringing in live HD source directly from the park, which allowed us, one, to improve the quality, but also to cut down on the latency of the broadcast streams coming from the games to get it out to your computer. So 2005, uh, was really the birth of mobile for, for baseball from MLB.com. And the opportunity was to take all these terrific features that have been offered online, all the streaming, the live audio, the live video, um, the ticket purchase flows. But we looked around and we said, you know what, the networks aren't there yet, and certainly the devices in 2005, we were all carrying flip phones and candy bars with 12 buttons on them. They weren't there either. But what we did see was services were starting to be developed, things like uh, mobile web, phones had browsers in them, very rudimentary browsers. Um, text messaging, we were all sending and receiving text messages back in 2005 and we had a product where you could deliver team alerts to fans. And then lastly, apps, not apps as we know them today, but apps that were developed on platforms like Brew and J2ME, all gave us the opportunity to start experimenting with delivering content to fans. Right. And it was really huge for us, a giant advantage to get into mobile so early. And being in 2005, we really had the opportunity to rethink everything we were doing on MLB.com for the mobile context. And that meant users who were on the go, users who were on devices with really limited broadband capability. At the time, we were still on an edge network. And small screens and new inputs like D-pads and access keys. So we really started to change the entire way MLB.com operated to think about how to best serve content to users in a mobile environment. And the mobile environment was really difficult. If you think back to your phone in 2005, you probably had a flip phone, what we call a feature phone from one of the carriers. And the entire mobile experience, particularly browsing, was very gated by the carrier. So you couldn't just open up your phone and go to a browser and search for something or type in a URL. You had to go through what we called the carrier decks. And the carrier decks were these wall gardens, much like AOL uh, in its heyday. And we really had to work closely with the carriers to get our content because if you weren't featured on one of the decks, no one was gonna see your site, which also meant we were subject to a lot of rules and restrictions from the carriers about the way our content had to look and behave. They gave us detailed style guides and made us link back to their carrier decks from every page on our site, which means we had to detect every carrier your phone was on just so we could serve links back to their pages. Right. So in addition to the business relationships with the four major carriers to get our site available on their decks, SMS had its own shortcomings. Short codes were expensive. You have, have to lease them even to today. You have to go to the individual carriers and get them to permission you to allow your traffic over their networks. And apps in those early days were extremely cumbersome. In addition to building the apps and getting the apps certified, all which had great expense, the carriers took 50% of the revenue. Yeah, and that was also our real first introduction into the uh, term you hear a lot these days, which is device fragmentation, particularly with developing apps. When we created an app for Brew, we had to submit it to the carrier on 30 different specific devices where they did complete end-to-end -end testing of every feature in the app, submitted us copious feedback about what 
was right, what was wrong. We spent a ton of time developing for different media codecs. In the browser world, we had completely different levels of support for HTML, you know, the different screen sizes. It was a ton of development time. Our most popular devices back then were actually Blackberries and those old Motorola Razor phones. Remember when Motorola was really big into four-letter razors and sliders and uh, all those devices. So we were spending a huge percentage of our development time simply handling cross-device issues like screen size, HTML support. Those Blackberries came with their tables and style sheets turned off, and you know people were just getting a pretty lousy experience. Fast forward to 2007, and the iPhone is released, and it was revolutionary, right? It had a touch screen, it didn't have a keypad, it also could do things like stream live video, or stream video clips, rather. And really what it spelled the end was, it spelled the end of the carrier decks, the, the monopoly. It allowed anybody to deliver content directly to fans. Yeah. The other big innovation uh, of the iPhone that made a huge deal to us was that it was the first phone that made it super easy to get Wi-Fi connectivity. And for the first time, you could really see what it was like to have a broadband experience on a really capable mobile device. And that really opened our eyes, particularly to the possibilities of what could we do with live video or any kind of video, really, on a mobile device. Right. <clears throat> so the off-season going into 2008, we took the opportunity to leverage the iPhone and we saw that our, our fans had these phones, they were using these phones and the ability to deliver video to the phones was something that was very tantalizing for us. So we launched a product in the off season in, in preparation for opening day called Video Alerts. Essentially we sent fans a text message with an embedded URL that they could click on and watch video. Part of that, that was unheard of. You couldn't do that in the world that we lived in prior with feature phones. Moving into 2008, um, the SDK from Apple was released. That was March of 2008. Yeah, and the SDK was another huge game changer for us. Really, there was so much excitement in the developer community about it. If you remember, the first iPhone did not have apps. And in fact, the encouragement was to build web apps. But there was a huge outpouring of the developer community saying, we want to really tap into the potential of this device. Let us build native apps. And our developer team was no different. They were incredibly excited about this. Because if you remember at the time, the App Store wasn't the App Store with nearly a billion apps and you know, huge numbers of downloads. We really had to decide, you know, is this a place where we want to be committing our resources to, to build apps, or should we focus on web? But it was really because our development team was just so incredibly passionate about creating for this platform that we decided that we would embrace it. And the move really paid off. We got an app ready in time for Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference that June. And we actually got to send two of our developers to present on stage at the keynote to show what baseball apps would look like on an iPhone. And in July that year, actually, uh, this is the anniversary, the App Store launched. And that first day, we were extremely, extremely happy and surprised. We priced AppBat that first season at $4.99. And the first day, we sold 5,000 apps. You know, our fans spoke with their pocketbooks and wallets and their enthusiasm. Yep, and really, if you go back, here's some screens of the original iPhone app. It was actually based on Apple's Stocks app. It was incredibly simple. It only offered scores and video highlights. But what we learned was that with an incredibly easy to use, great customer experience, we could take content that we were pretty much giving away on the web and we could sell it and fans were really delighted. They loved the experience and they just immediately reviews came in asking for more and more features. 
So 2009 was a pivotal season. At the end of 2008, AppBat was on the store. We constantly updated the app. We, we actually incorporated game day at the end of that season, but we launched the following year in 2009 with AppBat 2009. The big feature was live streaming audio. Fans for the first time could li listen to live games, choose home and away broadcasts. During that off-season as well, we spent a lot of investment time working on a technology called HTTP Live Streaming. And what that was, was an adaptive bitrate streaming technology, meaning that as your bandwidth fluctuated, the streams would automatically adapt and drop or raise quality to fill your available bandwidth. And that was a big deal for the mobile environment, where as you dropped from Edge or switched to a 3G network or even up to Wi-Fi, the streams could automatically adapt and become give you the best possible experience for your current device. So we had spent the whole off-season working on that, which became incredibly important. Right, and then following WWDC that year when Apple unveiled the iOS that supported live streaming, we actually were the first sports league to deliver live games on the iPhone. Later that summer, we opened up the iPhone to all of our MLB.TV subscribers on iPad, where they could log in and see the same experience that they could see previously only on their desktop computers for the first time on a mobile device. And Apple introduced one other big feature at that keynote event, which was the first time doing in-app purchase. And we sort of had this mandate from our CEO, which is anytime Apple announces something really cool, we really need to be the first sports league to be on top of it and release it. So that same year, we actually sold through in-app purchase single games during the pennant races. So you could buy and log in and watch one game for 99 cents. And surprisingly, no one was interested. We had huge take up on our streaming subscription package, but there was really limited interest in going in and buying 99 cent games, which was pretty surprising to us. In 2009, our CEO went on CNBC and made a prediction. Since 2009, by, 2000, by this time, in two years, we'll have more wireless page views than wired page views on MLB.com. No, well, that won't even be close. It'll be well over 50%. And as you can see, that prediction came, through, came true in, in, in 2000. 12 wireless page views had surpassed wired page views, and it was historic, and, and he was right, and it's just gone up from there. 2010, another historic moment, the iPad arrives. Yeah, the iPad was another huge opportunity for us. Um, Apple invited us to speak at their iPad launch keynote. Um, there I am, I think I'm actually wearing the same shirt. Um, and it was really great to be a part of that because we really got to say, how can we make AppBat even better for the iPad? We can't just take our existing iPhone app and make it bigger. We really need to rethink the entire experience to take advantage of the great screen on that device. The downside to doing that was the event was in January, opening day is April 1, and you know it's now February 1, and we have nothing, we have a demo, and we've stood up and we've said to the world, hey, this is what baseball is gonna look like on this great, coming out great device and we had nothing so we pretty much had to really accelerate bring in a whole bunch of new development teams our our development team really had a herculean task of getting this new app ready because we were already trying to get our regular iphone app out in time for the launch of opening day but they you know that engineering team just put in a huge amount of work and on april 1st when the the season started and the iPad launched, AppBat was there in the App Store ready to go. And for that season, we had two apps on the App Store, two AppBat apps. We had AppBat for iPhone and AppBat for iPad. And at the end of the year, Apple came out with their daily rewind uh, of the top apps for the season, and AppBat was named the top grossing app that year, beating out such notable apps that year as Angry Birds. 
One of the other big uh, 2010 occurrences for us is we were trying to figure out, you know, now that sort of phones, smartphones were becoming ubiquitous, what could we really do to offer fans who had this device on them all the time? And we thought, what about a set of features for fans who are at the ballpark? So we decided to create a set of utilities in AtBat for fans going to games, like maps and menus. You could check into games to record what games you've gone to. And we started going to the clubs because we wanted to launch this for the All-Star game and asked, all right, what can you give us in the way of maps? And we started to get uh, some pretty rough blueprints, other sort of print materials, which left Adam and I to go walk around the stadiums and actually record every concession stand, every shop, every little area in the park. We were going around with a clipboard and marking off, here it is. But it all paid off because we were able to get this great feature in our app of all these maps where you could go in and tap and find any bar inside the stadium. Later that season, we sat around and said, how do we improve the experience? How do we improve the utility of the application? And we decided that it would be really cool if you could sit inside a ballpark and order food and beverage on your iPhone and have, have it delivered to you. And we did just that, working with the Philadelphia Phillies and Aramark in Philadelphia. We developed and delivered a mobile food ordering app that allowed fans to browse a menu, order and pay on a credit card, and literally have it delivered to you no matter where you sat in the ballpark. It was really revolutionary, but it really proved us the utility of the iPhone. So by 2012, we had sort of found ourselves in the world that Apple had described as the post-PC world. We had started releasing our products on Macs, on PCs, on iPhones, on iPads. We're also on a whole range of connected devices from Apple TVs to gaming consoles. And we realized that our product line sort of hadn't kept up with the changes. So we started to make, particularly to AppBat, some very significant changes. For one, we had always had a separate iPhone and iPad apps, plus a free iPhone app called AppBat Lite. So the very first thing we did was we merged those together into a single app that users could buy once. Plus, we made the app free and moved the purchase to an in-app purchase experience, meaning you could download the app free from the App Store and subscribe to it. And by making the app free, that enabled us to do a third thing, which was let our MLB TV subscribers, who are paying us over $100 a year to access the complete like, best package of live streaming games, could now come into the app, log in, and at no additional cost, access all of our content, which meant with that one MLB TV account, you could get all your content on an iPad, on an iPhone, on an iPod Touch, on an Apple TV, on a gaming console, on the PC, or a Mac. So we really started to rethink our product line to embrace this post-PC era. Right. And the net result growth was explosive. We actually saw two times the growth in 10 and 11 combined in the number of downloads. It was really monumental. The other big change we made is we realized that while offering great utility, putting all of those ballpark features in AppBat had created a lot of what we called feature bloat. Uh, if you've ever developed apps, you, know, you start to get feature creep. You add more and more content. And over time, the app gets harder to test. The build cycles slow down, not to mention the fact that the content just became harder to find. So we split out all of the ballpark content into a separate app called At the Ballpark. And now we had a separate utility for fans going to games. Right. And what we saw at WWDC uh, last year was the release of iOS 6. And iOS 6 enabled us to deliver 
experiences like passbook ticketing. And in fact, we took the opportunity after the release of the software to launch in four ballparks. And fans took to it. In fact, 12% of all single game tickets were downloaded using passbook. So it's now 2013, and AppBat is on all of these iOS devices. We're also, of course, on Android. We've done a Windows Phone version of it, a BlackBerry version of it, a BlackBerry 10 version of it. We even did a Palm version of it. But a question we get asked a lot is, it seems like your best, your newest features always come out on iOS first, and then everything else seems to follow. So we thought we would share a little bit about the experience on the development side about why this tends to happen and why iOS tends to go first. And it really comes back to that fragmentation story we were talking about earlier. So when we develop for iOS, we're pretty much supporting about 10 devices between the iPhone, the iPod Touches, the iPad, iPad Mini, Retina, et cetera. When we develop for Android, so far we've had AppBat users on 2,000 different devices. However, the story is a little more complicated because there are also different operating system versions. So on iOS, it's about 153 total combinations of devices running different operating systems. But on iOS, most of them tend to be on iOS 6 or the latest version because everyone's getting the latest update. So a lot of the secondary devices really aren't our primary focus. But when you multiply those on Android, we see 15,000 different device OS combinations. And of course, we can't test them all, but there are many, many users who are still on Android's 2.3 operating system or haven't gotten the latest update and particularly features around video playback are really difficult to QA and test to make sure they're working on every device. And a huge percentage of our time on these other platforms just goes into supporting video, which frees up our iOS team to be moving on to new cool features that Apple's been releasing. So let's look at the results. Uh, AppBat downloads on iOS devices, you're looking at 70% compared to 30% for all the other devices combined. Usage, 80% of our usage is on iOS devices. And revenue, 85% of our revenue is coming from iOS devices. The other big number that we tend to track is usage. I mean, at the end of the day, we really just care. Are you just having a good experience with our app? Are they enjoying it? Are they getting the stats they want, the video they want? And one of the ways we measure that is by looking at return visits. So what we've seen with our app at subscribers is that 60% of them are coming back almost every day during a month. And that's really important to us because we really do want people to use the app every day. We want it to be part of their lives as a baseball fan. Now we'd like to share with you a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes, how all that content, the stats, the video, come from the field and get delivered into our application. So to present now, I'm going to introduce Corey Schwartz, who's Vice President of Statistics. All right, let me tell you a little bit about what we do here in the stats department. First of all, try not to think of it as stats. Think of it in terms of data. Our group is responsible for live data capture for over 17,000 games a year between Major League Baseball, minor leagues, winter leagues, spring training. We go about 50 weeks a year, so it's a pretty busy job. Our job starts with the pitch FX system, which tracks every pitch baseball from the pitcher to the front edge of home plate using high-speed sensor cameras that record dozens of images of each pitch. Two tracking cameras are permanently mounted high above the field at high first base and high third base, and those cameras send images to a central tracking computer which detects the pitches and tracks the ball in each image along its trajectory. Each camera records about 60 images per second, yielding about four dozen images per pitch. Using carefully measured camera parameters together with each image, the tracking computer uses the equations of motion and physics to determine the ball's velocity, location, and movement at any point along the trajectory. 
We have qualified, trained operators monitoring the system throughout the game to ensure that we're getting accurate data, as well as performing routine maintenance, troubleshooting any problems that may arise, and overseeing the data sent by the system to our broadcast partners as well as the clubs who use the data on scoreboards and other in-stadium displays. In addition to the velocity movement and location for each pitch, we also use the PitchFX data to determine the classification for each pitch by using a neural net software that compares the properties of that pitch to those of previously defined control pitches and then looks for the best fit to determine the pitch type. A secondary layer of logic is applied to bias the results for each pitcher towards specific pitch types. For example, if we know that the pitcher throws a slider but not a curveball, we can bias the system to make sure the system doesn't tell us the pitcher's throwing curveballs when in fact he's throwing sliders. But the system isn't completely rigid, and if a pitcher introduces a new pitch to his repertoire, the system is trained to learn and identify those new pitches. There are about 290 pitches thrown in the average major league game, or somewhere around 720,000 pitches in the entire regular season and postseason and we store about three dozen data points for each pitch FX pitch. So add it all up, and that's about 25.5 million discrete data points just for the pitch FX, just for the major leagues each season. Once the pitch FX system has done its job with each pitch, that data is transmitted over a secure connection to our stat stringer, who sits in the press box, and he verifies that it's an official pitch and attaches the result to it, whether it's a ball, a strike, hit into play, or hit by pitch. The stringer is responsible for recording the results of every pitch and play within the game, as well as keeping track of substitutions, weather conditions, official scoring decisions, and post-game information such as pitching decisions, time of game, and attendance. The scoring software our stringers use has robust rules built within it that enforce the rules of baseball. For example, it has to maintain a complete batting order and defensive lineup for both teams. There must be four balls for a walk, three outs for an inning. But the software is also time-tested and flexible enough that can handle the odd situations that we've seen over the course of nearly 13 years. For example, we've had teams batting out of order. We've had an inning ending with only two outs. The same batter hit leadoff in every inning. Players have appeared for both teams in the same game. And, of course, we've had games ending in mercy rules, ties, and forfeits. We score over 17,000 games each season between the majors, minor leagues, winter leagues, World Baseball Classic, and so on. So including the 2013 regular season to date, we've scored a little over 150,000 games at all leagues and level of play since 2001, and we've seen pretty much everything in that time. Now, we mentioned those 25.5 million pitch FX data points before, and now when you add in the stats data, this is where the numbers really start to get big. There are about 75 plate appearances in each major league game, and we store about 425 rows of event data for each game, one for each pitch, one for the result of each plate appearance, plus substitutions, injury notifications, and so on. That's over a million rows of event data per season just for the major leagues. At the player level, we store about 90 different data points for batters and about 1,200 rows per season. For pitchers, 115 data points and 700 rows. And for fielding, about 60 data points and almost 1,400 rows. So add that all up, that's about 270,000 discrete data points just for Major League stats for each season, and that doesn't include splits, schedules, rosters, player data, and so forth. And that's just the Major Leagues. There are about 290 pitches thrown in the average AAA game, or about 930,000 pitches in a season, including the postseason. In AA, we have about 280 pitches per game, or over 600,000 pitches for the full season. Plus, we have single A, short season leagues, rookie leagues, add it all up, and that's another few million rows of data each season for the minor leagues. 
Now, well, now that we have all these tens of millions of rows of data, what do we do with it? Well, obviously we service the industry. Everything we have is provided to every major league club every day. We service major media outlets, business partners, broadcast outlets, but also the data is open source. So researchers, sabermetricians, and other fans can get their hands on the data, do some great research, and learn more about this incredible game and the players. Next, Tom Pasikas is going to talk to us a little bit about how we deliver video, take it from the field and deliver it across all of our platforms. Tom is Director of Broadcast Infrastructure. Welcome to our Transmission Operations Center here at the Chelsea Market in New York City. This is the central command where we acquire and distribute content for MLB and our partners. It also happens to be located in the old Nabisco Cookie Factory. I'll be introducing you to both the technical and operational challenges of content acquisition and how we've modified a former cookie factory into a state-of-the-art broadcast facility. Since 2006, we've been acquiring the video that drives MLB TV directly from each of the 30 Major League ballparks using an, a private IP MPLS network. Each ballpark is equipped with an OC3 circuit to facilitate this. We encode both the home and visiting team's produced game content directly off the TV trucks, which provide this to us as a 1.485 gig uncompressed HDSDI signal. These feeds are either 720p or 1080i HD video with four channels of audio. We currently encode our video as H.264, encapsulated in an MPEG-2 transport stream. We add additional Pro MPEG error correction packets to maintain reliable video delivery to New York. In addition to the encoding infrastructure, each park has a number of control and monitoring systems that are both IT and broadcast-centric. We have access to real-time monitoring of critical temperature and humidity controls, as the environments at the parks vary greatly. We have to be very conscious of these elements, especially at some of the older parks that were never envisioned to be facilities for 21st century IT broadcast systems. We have also installed remote-controlled IP cameras in many of the parks to cover press conferences, providing additional content to fans of baseball that often isn't seen anywhere else. Whether televised or not, every game is covered on MLB.TV. We are a full-service operation from production to acquisition and distribution. In the event a game isn't broadcasted by a national or regional sports network, we roll out a full HD production truck to produce and transmit the game back to our headquarters. It's not just the technology, but the dedicated group of broadcast engineers we have running our operations that ensure a high quality of service to our subscribers. In order to maintain the integrity of the production, this requires close coordination with the remote techs who are our boots on the ground. Let's take a look at how a feed originates from the ballpark. A tech will work with the national or regional sports network truck to acquire a stable video feed ready for encoding. The tech first takes the coax cable off the truck and connects it to our interconnect panel. Once connected to our broadcast infrastructure, our New York engineers remotely route that signal to our encoders. Our broadcast engineers then fire up an encode using a custom SNMP controller. This directs the signal to the appropriate team's decoder. Once received in New York, the signal is decoded back to HDSDI, where the engineers normalize to 720p and perform video and audio quality control. This is also the point where closed captioning is inserted. Our engineers are incredibly adept at catching errors and taking corrective action immediately, but they are responsible for the acquisition and distribution of up to hundreds of events per day. In order to handle this, we built a video wall to monitor all inbound and outbound encodes. It's comprised of 36, 46-inch monitors with over 74 million pixels. This view contains broadcast quality multi-viewers, which composite any number of custom visual arrangements, 
with real-time alerts on the quality of video. Another part of our product that truly enhances the user experience is the ability to listen to various audio sources. These feeds are compiled from a variety of sources but are ultimately aggregated here in our Media 1A facility. Ultimately, the choice of which audio feed you want to listen to in our products is yours. If you choose not to listen to a certain team's TV announcers, tune in a radio call, or if you want to feel like you're at the park, dial up the natural sounds without commentary. We provide all of these options through this infrastructure. It is our core AV routing matrix switcher that makes so much of this possible. This is the system that combines our various audio sources, applies digital signal processing such as gain and delay, then sends it to our destination live encoder for end user consumption. As you can see, this video routing matrix is dense with cables. The video portion alone is 576 inputs by 576 outputs. All live streams are routed to our encoders using a custom automation system that drives upwards of 13,000 matrix routes per day. Once we've routed the video, it is transmitted to our distribution facility for live and archival encoding using dark fiber and high-density TDM and CWDM broadcast technology. It is the combination of these specialized systems along with a highly competent operational staff that provides the backbone of our video acquisition. Today, MLB.com is still located in the Chelsea Market, which is now a very upscale neighborhood right there along the High Line. And we're about 600 employees, with 60% of those in engineering and product support. Uh, we also have real-time correspondents who are out at the games doing social media. They're on Instagram and Twitter. That's all run centrally through MLB.com. Right. In addition to streaming MLB.com games, we also work for a number of other clients, including ESPN and Turner Sports. In fact, this year, we'll stream more than 20,000 live events. Chad, do you want to do a demonstration of AtBat? Yep. This is the iPad version, and fortunately, we're well-timed because we have some live games going on right now. So um, we've got KC versus New York, and you know we have Texas at Baltimore. Um, see if we have Toronto at Cleveland. And um, what you're seeing is how all of this data that Corey and Tom described comes together. So you can see that we have the real-time pitch FX data coming in. There was just an 81 mile per hour curveball, and I can tap on it, and I can see the actual curve and break of the pitches as pulled in from all those camera angles around the park. I can, of course, bring in the box score, the complete game play-by-play, -play, the lineups for the game, and if I want, I can watch uh, video highlights that have been cut real-time from the bro broadcast. So the moment the play happens, you can jump and actually blow it up to full screen. We have a whole multimedia infrastructure set up to cut these clips in real-time, and we can get them out to your devices often in under a minute. So, you know, the player crosses home plate, and literally seconds later, we can deliver that video highlight. Um, and, of course, we have the audio broadcasts, and the MLB TV feeds. So let's try jumping into this game. I'll hit the Cleveland broadcast. It'll verify my access. And there you are in MLB TV, uh, streaming our high def feeds. And uh, that's pretty much uh, MLB.com at bat. So what I'd also like to do now is introduce Jamie Lease, our Vice President of Gaming, to take you through one of our other apps, which is the Home Run Derby app, which is a new game we've just recently launched. Jamie? It's a great presentation to wrap up 12 years of great history at BAM in 40 minutes. So uh, great job by Chad and Adam. 
I don't know if you guys noticed there, it was really interesting. They showed the, uh, the what we call a live drop-in promoting the Home Run Derby app on that Toronto-Cleveland uh, game, which was great. So I'm Jamie Lease. I'm the Vice President of Gaming at Major League Baseball Advanced Media. Helping me today will be Nathan Tompkins, who is uh, one of our producers at, at uh, BAM in the gaming department. And we want to give you a, a sneak peek or, or a quick look at the Home Run Derby app that we've launched recently on the App Store. So you'll, you'll notice, uh, if you're familiar with uh, the All-Star game and the Home Run Derby, Monday night we announced seven of the eight players that are going to be playing in this year's Home Run Derby, participating. And last night at 6 o'clock on SportsCenter, we announced the eighth one. Last night at around 9.30, our game was updated on the App Store, and you could then download and play any of the participants from this year's Derby right in the game. You might think we've known for weeks. I, I found out on SportsCenter at 6 o'clock on Monday, the 7, and I found out the 8th last night at 6.02 on SportsCenter. So it was a, another Herculean task to pull that off. So we're going to just jump right in here to the Home Run Derby game. And the great thing about this product is we've also included 20, 2012, 2011, and 2010 Derby participants. So you can actually go in and select any player from any of those derbies to play in the game. So there's features like single player and multiplayer, and there's also arcade mode and derby mode. So we're going to go in and take a look and see, you know, which, which different um, player we want to pick. So you've got the 11, the 12. We're going to go into 13 and look at the uh, City Field All-Star game. And, you know, why don't we go ahead and pick David Wright, since he's the, uh, the captain of the home team at the, uh, in the National League. We'll get this started. We're going to go in and show you the, the jewel event inside the derby game, which is the derby mode. We're playing single player. The great thing about Derby Mode, this is where you can play and challenge yourself against the best sluggers in the game and see if you can win the Derby just like they're going to do next Monday night at Cindy Field. So we spent a lot of time meticulously crafting the game so it would capture all of the visuals of Cindy Field. Here you'll see before you get to play all of the other batters and how they've performed. So he's got a big challenge. Chris Davis has hit 15 home runs. I don't know if that's an omen and uh, Nathan's going to go on and see how far he can go. So you'll see here it's beautifully crafted, looks just like City Field, and you, you take control of the batter, the pitches come in realistically, and you, you basically just touch and release. We'll see what, uh, what Nathan can do here. So you see up here on the right-hand side, you've got all of the, the, the leaderboard there. He's just started. He's he had his first, first uh, swing was an out. He's got no home runs yet. There's a good one. Perfect timing. Right to the big apple. So this game is single player or multiplayer. You can play with your friends using Facebook or MLB.com accounts. It's free to play. It's downloadable right now in the App Store. And the, the, the more you play, you, get in, you earn in-game currency, tokens, MLBox, coins, and you can improve your player, get other players, and, and challenge your friends around the world. That's Home Run Derby. So we're going to be around, we're going to be around for a little while. Thank you very much. If you have any questions, um, we'll, we'll be around to talk. But we really appreciate you all coming out, everybody on the podcast. And thank you very much. And thanks to Apple and Soho Star. Thanks.